Welcome to the Learning Evolution Podcast. I'm your host, Adam McDaniel. This show is for everybody who wants to evolve the learning at their organization to deliver the support their people need to perform better. This episode is the second part of our interview with J.D. Dillon. If you haven't listened to part one yet, you should probably do so before checking this episode out. JD is the founder of LearnGeek, CLO of Exonify, and recently published author of the book, The Modern Learning Ecosystem. In this episode, we cover JD's Modern Learning Ecosystem Framework and what Exonify offers for training and supporting frontline employees. Let's jump in. One thing that stuck out there is the fact that a lot of employees do get overwhelmed with the amount of information and potentially how difficult to navigate their systems are. And a, a trend that I've noticed is that employees will just give up entirely on the internal tools and they'll go to their phone or their computer and they're going to Google or YouTube the answer. And you shared a nice story about how you fixed your fridge looking on YouTube. And and it's very disappointing how people in L&D don't look at how people learn outside of work. I fixed my drywall off of YouTube too. I don't know if we went to the same DIY channel. But uh, you know, it, there's so many things that we can learn easily outside of work through YouTube videos or by Googling steps to do something. And then we just overcomplicate it at work. So I love the wiki approach. I love leveraging your subject matter experts to build that. I love scaling because everybody has resource issues. So there's a lot of good things in that shared knowledge. And that's the base. You say you flip the pyramid. That's the base of the pyramid. Not courses, not deliverables, but shared knowledge. And, and the next layer after that is performance support. We've alluded to it before. I'm a big fan of uh, Bob Mosher. I had Guy Wallace on the show. So I, I really, the, the pioneers in that space, uh, I'm big fans of them and that approach. So when you talk about performance support, um, I, I think some people associate that with what your your first level with shared knowledge was. So what do you mean specifically by performance support as you presented in your framework? The way I think about it is when I can't raise my hand, when, when I don't know and I need to raise my hand. So it's I, I simply define it as how do people raise their hand when they need help? And the way to address that could be a myriad of different solutions. This is true of the entire framework, but it could be an electronic performance support system where I click an icon and the system walks me through the process because I don't know how to do it. Or it could be a Slack channel where I go in and ask the team, hey, I, I've never encountered this before. How do you solve this particular problem? In my wiki story, it's, it's threaded comments. It's just people looking at a product page and saying, I don't see what I need here, and being able to ask the question and know that they're going to get a, a quick, meaningful, reliable response to their question. I think there's infinite number of circumstances out there where people just don't know how to raise their hand and they'll default to the person next to them and say, Hey, how do you, how do you do this? And rely on the fact that the person next to them is good at their job. And there's an unfortunate number of situations where that person doesn't know what they're doing either. Or that's where you start to introduce the, this is how we really do it here situation. When people start to rely on these informal channels that you never see as L&D or as an operation. And I mean, I remember one company I worked for, I was in onboarding. Second day, a manager delivered a presentation and said, I know what you're learning in this room, but this is how we really do it here. And I'm sitting in the room going, oh no. It's, this is day two. We've got a problem. And it's not, maybe he was saying the right way to do it here. There's just something wrong that we have to fix in, with regards to that disconnect. So it's just, it's as simple as making sure every employee knows, hey, Here's how I raise my hand to get help, especially when I'm new or the topic's new, I'm lacking in confidence. 
what have you, because, you know, we, I think we always assumed learning is kind of a continuum that people go from novice to expert. And the reality is that you may be an expert on a lot of stuff and a novice on some other things. So it's a continuum based on a variety of different factors. Everyone needs to know how to raise their hand. And I mean, one of my favorite recently, I was in a conversation with someone around the concept of, of supporting managers. And they said that they have a manager hotline because they have thousands of managers in this business. And the challenge is each manager is kind of operating the silo. And I know what that's like because I managed movie theaters. I had to solve the problem myself or kind of go up the hierarchy when I had a question, right? And my boss may not be here and his boss may be on vacation and all of those types of things. Well, in this company, there's a phone number that every manager has that they call and there's someone on the other side and they're an experienced operator and they know how this works. And if they don't know, they're gonna figure it out. So it's this interesting like lo-fi hotline. It's not a high tech situation. It's what they know works for their business. And like I said, it's just the managers now know. I don't have to guess or figure it out on my own. If, if I'm unconfident in what I'm doing, I can raise my hand, pick up the phone and say, hi, reliable person. How do I do this and get help? And that's how I look at performance support. Yeah, that's great. It's it's help when something doesn't go as expected or you need help that the uh, the resources that curated knowledge is not helping with. I've I've used Slack channels that have been great. I've even seen some companies that use WhatsApp threads or Discord threads because it's that same type of thing. It's just adapting to whatever technology people are using. Um, so uh, after we have that shared knowledge, after we have that performance support, the next layer is reinforcement. And I know you alluded to this earlier with your uh, story about having those scenarios that reinforced monthly, but you also mentioned in the book separate from what people need to know to what is nice to know. What do you mean by that? So at this point in the framework with those two foundational layers, we've been talking about what I would call nice to know. It's the things that people can look up. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm saying that in the course of doing your job, this is the type of information that I'm not expected to retain in order to do my job effectively, safely, what have you. So um, if if I'm working as a salesperson in a retail store and a customer comes up to me and they want to know information about the products that we're selling, there may be certain uh, details of those products that's fine for me to look up because I'm not necessarily going to remember, especially I'm new on the job, all the specs of a particular device, what have you. But there may be certain things that I need to know to instill confidence in that customer that they're in the right place, we know what we're doing, and we're going to help you. Safety is another great thing, right? I can't look up everything in order to make sure I'm making the right decision. I still need to be able to access information on different safety procedures, but there's just some stuff I have to know to make sure I keep myself safe, my peers safe, my customers safe and whatnot. So we've crossed that dividing line tactically when we go from performance support to reinforcement because there's infinite amount of information available within your business. No one knows everything, especially when they're new on the job. But what are those things that we really want people to retain? That's where we start reinforcing. So people having opportunities to practice, the example I gave earlier around using questions and scenarios to help people retain and apply that information. And it's this is the layer that's most often completely missing, where the reality is of the book, it's, it's a lot of familiar ideas that you've probably heard about before, just wrapped together and positioned as a holistic strategy in a way that I don't find most organizations are kind of putting the pieces together. And the piece that's often missing is that reinforcement layer to say, on certain topics for certain audiences, or maybe at certain times, we wanna make sure 
people retain that information, not just remember it factually, but have the ability to apply it. And there's a lot of information that, especially, you know, in onboarding, that people are taught or that's included in training that may not come up for a while, if ever. And I know our goal is often to position training as close to the moment of application as we can. That's a great idea. In a lot of cases, it just can't happen. Like I said, perfect uh, solution versus the right solution. So and I keep going back to retail examples, but, you know, take, take uh, theft prevention, which is actually a big topic of conversation right now in the retail space. During onboarding, almost every retail employee is taught about loss prevention and theft and what they need to do, who they need to call, right, what to look for, those types of ideas. Hopefully, they don't face that situation on day two, three, four, five, six, right? Hopefully, they don't face it ever. But if they do face it, it might be six months from now. What are the odds that they're going to remember exactly what to do or what to look for six months later after the training when there's a whole bunch of other stuff included on onboarding, including, you know, how do I get my schedule and how am I paid and those things people really want to know about when they start a job. And then since then, they probably learned about new products and new processes and then a point of sale system changed, right? So reinforcing these critical pieces of information that we need people to know to make the right decision is an important part of the story when it's something that you can't just look up in the moment of need. So that's why it's a, its own layer within the framework. And I often find it's the layer that's missing because again, finding time, uh, finding opportunities for people to practice using different types of activities to do it. It's way outside the bounds of your kind of traditional structured course-based learning experience. And even when people try to bake it in to more programmatic stuff, it's usually the stuff that gets cut, right? Because people don't have time, managers push back, operations too busy. And in L&D, unfortunately, we often get limited to, you know, you have two hours of people, do your best. Well, hopefully the tactics in the book, including this layer of reinforcement, express how we can break outside of those barriers by, again, embedding these opportunities seamlessly into the workflow so that, you know, a lot of my work is embedding two to three minutes of training in a frontline worker shift. And that sounds like a lot. Or it sounds like not a lot, depending on what perspective you're coming from. If you're me, it doesn't sound like a lot. If you're an operational manager, like I once was, where am I getting those two to three minutes, right? Two to three minutes every shift for every employee, that's a lot of time. Uh, but when you start to realize that by investing those two or three minutes, which people do have in almost every job every day, uh, you can actually help people be more prepared, feel more confident, make a better decision that's actually going to pay for itself in terms of that time in business improvement. But yeah, it's that that layer of reinforcement is right in the middle of the framework. I think it's critical to supporting everything that comes after it by making sure people retain and are ready to apply and confident to apply information when they need to. And unfortunately, it's one of the harder things to find our way through, especially if we're limited in our reach and our kind of access to people's time as L&D. We'll come back to that two to three minutes and the popular buzzword that is associated with that type of training a little bit later. Um, one more thing on on this reinforcement thing is you, you you mentioned some terminology that to me typically gets associated with marketing and product teams. You talk about personas and you talk about uh, doing A-B tests or experiments. So for anyone who's unfamiliar, how can those concepts be integrated into uh, an L&D strategy? You have to know the audience. So in terms of understanding what the, the audiences or multiple audiences potentially that you support, what their day-to-day -day reality looks like. So that includes what type of work do they do? Where do they do that work? What types of tools and resources do they use? What types of technology? How is their performance measured? Uh, how, are they, um, how are they motivated? Like what's typically their motivation for doing an effective job? Whether it's the job overall or maybe executing a very specific task. So I offer a kind of results-based 
uh, model alongside the modern learning ecosystem framework that speaks to working our way backwards from the, des- the defined goal we're trying to achieve. And the second piece is defining, well, who needs to perform in order for that goal to be achieved by the business and breaking down, well, what do we have to understand? And again, there might be other attributes that you need to wrap into your persona definition, but understanding that you likely support if you're a large L&D team different personas within your business. So let's say you're a global pharmaceutical firm. Well, you might support people who work in manufacturing facilities, professional sales people who travel around and meet with doctors in their offices, uh, R&D people, people working in labs, the executive teams, the marketing teams. So there's a lot of different, not just functions. It's not about the job that you do because the reality of learning is that what you learn is heavily influenced by what you do, your specific job how you learn, how learning fits into your day-to-day reality is influenced by how you work. So even if a, a person who works on the manufacturing floor and a professional salespeople person needs to learn the exact same thing for some reason, we have to look at their reality, which is maybe has some overlapping attributes in it. They're both very busy. Um, they're both maybe using mobile devices as part of their job, but also very different. Manufacturing workers working in a safety-critical environment maybe isn't allowed to touch a mobile device while they're out there on the manufacturing floor. Um, might have a different level of familiarity, different types of technology, all of those factors. While the salesperson's traveling, right, they have company-issued devices. Maybe we're thinking about how they can access information while they're in the waiting room of a doctor's office. So really understanding what the attributes are of the different personas or audiences that you're supporting, the critical part of figuring out, well, how can I best help this person? Because again, we need to go to them as much as we can versus forcing them to come to us. And as I said in the beginning, there's still going to be moments where they have to come to us, right? I'm not saying we don't put people in a room or we don't put people online or don't do extended programs or sessions, but we should be doing those things when it's the right thing versus defaulting to them because people don't have time or capacity And also, that's not how learning broadly works. So making sure we understand the persona of the different audiences is a key part of ultimately figuring out what's the right solution and the right way to apply the models that I offer in the book. That also helps individualize the experience for specific people. Um, So so I think those, those concepts are really great. Now, once we have that shared knowledge, the performance support, and then the reinforcement layers. The next thing is coaching, which really comes down to management, which is a different group from L&D. And, and you mentioned managers influence every part of the employee experience. We know a lot of people leave jobs because of bad management. Um, and th- this can be challenging outside of an academy or a leadership type training that's being delivered. So what can L&D teach teams do to specifically foster like a coaching and development uh, atmosphere at their workplace? First, we can step away from the idea that managers are all going to be effective teachers because they're not. Unless you start hiring people because they can be effective teachers or developing those skills and managers, it's unlikely that everyone's going to become that capable in that regard because it's simply not what managers are mandated to do. It's not their core skill set. What they are expected to do is coach. They're expected to observe performance on the job and provide feedback. So as L&D, how do we help them be more effective at that? So improve their, not just their skills around coaching and observation and those types of ideas, but can we help make sure that they have the right data to have an informed coaching conversation? So instead of going in and asking someone why they're not hitting their performance goals and making broad assumptions about the fact that they don't have training, they need more training in that particular area, right? Help them understand, well, no, this person has the knowledge. 
they're just not hitting the mark. So is it maybe a motivational problem? Is it an environmental problem? Is it a process problem? Is something else going on? So I think it's more about us being able to provide, first of all, data that they can use and insights that they can use to have more informed conversations. Uh, understanding that managers are the most important people in workplace learning, especially frontline managers because of the influence, like you said, that they have over the day-to-day -day experience. We've talked about that a couple of times already. But then the other factor is uh, something I mentioned in the influence chapter called the what have you done for me lately, which is why would we expect managers to buy into what we're trying to do to help their teams if we don't help them do their jobs better too? So if they don't have a good experience and they don't feel supported, I don't blame them for not necessarily buying in, even when mandated by the C-suite and whatnot. So I, I think we also overlook managers. And I've had that experience where when I work with a lot of frontline managers, I'll visit different locations and I love talking to the manager because one of the questions I ask is, you know, how did the company prepare you to be a, a good manager of the store? And more often than not, especially of late, as we see sh things changing in terms of experience and tenure and different types of jobs, I'll hear things like, well, I did, I've done, I was, you know, I worked here for five years. Uh, you know, I was really good at the job and then the manager left and I was the you know, next person up. So they promoted me. And I say, you know, when did you get training? They say, well, I'm waiting for the next training program to come around. It's not scheduled yet. And they've been in position for months at that point. So you wonder what's happened for the last couple of months and how they felt for the last couple of months. So all of these tactics that I suggest apply equally to manager layers within the business to making sure that they feel supported and they understand what learning and support can be and have exposure to these different tactics because they're using them too and getting value from them. And then based on my personal experience, it's then more easy to get them to buy into other things we want to do because they've seen it for themselves. They felt it. They've, they've got benefit from these types of tactics. So why wouldn't they want to see their teams get those same benefits? Because what do they get from that? Better performance, better outcomes. And that's what they're held accountable for. So it is a bit of a cycle there. But I think we have to look differently at the role of managers who play a critical part in the story. And they're their own layer in the framework because the rest of it doesn't work as we start to get more and more structured and focus on more and more complex problems. If we don't have managers along for the ride, playing the right part in the story, everything else is going to fall apart when things start to get more complicated. Yeah, it always pains me when I see these leadership programs that happen every six months or whatnot, and our leaders enroll for a long time before they get to go through it, and they just have to figure it out on their own. And by the time they go through it, it's not as relevant to them. Well, JD, let's get to the final piece of your your model, which is push and pull training. Uh, and that's interesting because for a lot of L&D teams, this tends to be the deliverables they spend the most amount of their time and effort in producing. So why did you put push and pull training at the top of the pyramid, you know, and saying that that's the, one of the smallest deliverables that L&D teams should produce? Interestingly, in the book, it was actually the last chapter I wrote, one of the shortest chapters, and I say at the beginning of the chapter, it was one of the most difficult chapters to write because First, I'm not going to try to explain instructional design or help you build a better course. There's lots of great books and materials and resources out there to help people build structured training content. But the entire idea around the mindset and the framework in the book is that we should use structured training, whether it's something that's referenced on demand or something that is required for people to do as a last resort. Because the simple reality of the workplace for everybody, regardless of what type of job you do, 
is that people only have so much time and so much capacity and so much energy to put forth towards a heavily structured experience that requires a lot of those things. And you can only pull away from your day-to-day -day work requirements for so long to engage in structured training. Doesn't mean it's not important, doesn't mean it's not part of something that we need to do and pull out of our toolkit at the right times. But the idea of the framework in the book is that you only get to that point when it's absolutely the right thing to do because the complexity of the topic is so high or the criticality factor in terms of how problematic will failure be is extremely challenging. So if someone is going to get hurt or this topic is, if done incorrectly, is going to put the business at a considerable risk, that's when we really need to start thinking about those structured training opportunities. But we don't just do that. The idea with the way the framework elements are stacked is that it's the last resort and also the last place we get to in our design approach. So we start by saying, well, what information can we make available in the shared knowledge layer? How are people going to get help around this topic in the performance support layer and so forth? And then there's that structured training outcome, whether it's a 45-minute course or a multi-week program, whatever that may be. But we support it with all of those other elements from across the framework. So in that way, even your structured training gets better or is more effectively supported or is more enduring because it's supported by all of the other elements of the framework. We don't just skip to the end even when we're, we're going to use those tactics. We still do everything else to get there. And then people get that much more benefit out of your structured opportunities. Because I still believe no one has ever gone back into the course six months later in order to look up the one thing they forgot from that time they did that e-learning. And that's where the other layers come in handy because it makes sure that people remember the right things or can access the right things or getting feedback on how they're applying what they learned. So the entire framework makes the structured pieces stronger. You just use them less often. You know, it's interesting that I absolutely agree with you. And I would imagine a lot of other L&D professionals would agree with you on that point where I think a lot of people struggle is that they face stakeholders and leaders in their business that see them as content producers, course creators, and instructional designers, and that's the only value that they can provide. So have, have you done any work worth helping people to overcome that preconceived notion where leaders want them to just produce courses and, and that's why they spend so much time on it? That's exactly how I was viewed until I wasn't. And it's one of those elements of mindset that's addressed really early on in the book in that everyone tends to look at learning, regardless of the context, as if it needs to look like school or it needs to look like that training program they went to that one time that they really enjoyed. It may or may not know if they got benefit from it, but they, they really liked the lunch. I kid. But we have to prove that there are other ways to address challenges to stakeholders who don't, frankly, do learning for a living. So I wouldn't expect someone from the product team or the compliance team to be keeping up on what's the latest advancements in learning technology and, and have adult learning theory top of mind and understand foundational learning science principles. They know what they've seen, right? They know if they've experienced personally and the types of tactics they've used in the past. So it's on us to influence people to think differently and to open their minds to new ideas. And that's why there's an entire chapter in the book dedicated to influence. Because you may think, all of these concepts are great. I'm buying what JD's selling, and I want to apply this framework within my practices. 
However, if the people that you're working with, both peers, stakeholders, subject matter experts, managers, if they don't buy in, none of it matters because we're ultimately trying to help them accomplish their goals. Uh, we're not the hero. We're building heroes in this story. So it, it requires us to look for those opportunities when we can introduce a new idea or, pr or show a case study or prove that there's another way to address this challenge. And I mentioned a couple of different times that I'm a big fan of yes and because it took me, frankly, a couple of years to get a lot of the people that I was working with in different organizations to buy into these new ideas. I think there's a lot more exposure to different types of ideas and different tools and whatnot now than there, there were when the framework was originally created. But in some cases, we still have to build the thing that we're asked for. If someone says, I need a two-hour course on, and you know you're sitting there thinking, how'd you come up with two hours? Where, where, what is that? And we want to consult and come up with the right solution. In some cases, maybe we'll be able to do that and apply more uh, rapid influencing tactics to get there. But in some cases, we might have to build the two-hour course and introduce that additional tactic or that, that new idea that people are less familiar with and prove that we can do things differently. Uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of L&D teams simply don't have the political influence within an organization just to say no. So that's why I outlined different types of stakeholders and different types of tactics that you may use to influence people to think differently, because it's a critical part of the journey. Even if we advance our practices and a mindset as L&D, we need to bring everyone else along the journey, because ultimately, like I said, we're trying to help them do the best that they can do. And a lot of cases, we can't just force people to think differently. We're working with belief here and experience, not just learning strategy and theory. The last thing I want to ask in regards to the content is you do reference something that's somewhat of a buzzword. It may trigger some people, but you talk about micro learning in, in the book. And, you know, really when, when that word is so loaded and there's a lot of different people who try to sell specific solutions about it. So when you reference micro learning, what, what are you talking about there? It's almost funny in a silly way to talk about micro learning in a book. <laughs> it's one of those, it's one of those moments where when I do a 60 minute session on micro learning, it always uh, pings in the back of my head of how somewhat silly this is based on how people traditionally think about micro learning. And the point of including one of the buzziest buzzwords of the past decade in learning and development in the book was to, from my perspective, set the record straight a bit because I think people get distracted by the buzzy concept because we tend to try to put these different things in their silos, right? Like micro learning's over there and we're, we'll use that sometimes. And then mobile learning's over there and adaptive learning's over there. And the whole point of the story that I tell in the book is how important it is for us to, instead of siloing off these different tools and strategies, to bring them all together under a set of common principles, right? A common approach for solving problems in a way that makes sense in today's workplace. And microlearning is one of those stories. So what I, what I try to do is explain that it's not about the word. It's not about a set duration of content. It's not that everything has to be less than 10 minutes because that's not how learning works at all. It's about a common set of principles. It's about leveraging familiar behavior. It's about focusing on a specific outcome. So instead of, I always use safety as a, as a common example. So instead of creating a course, that's 45 minutes long called safety in the workplace. And you include personal protective equipment and cleaning up spills and lifting effectively, all the things that are gonna keep you safe. 
we have to acknowledge that learning science exists and that people aren't going to retain all of that information, be able to effectively apply it later. So micro learning principles help you zero in on, okay, what's the specific behavior we're trying to change? What's the specific outcome? What's the one topic we're going to try to tackle with this solution? And in the safety example, it may be, okay, we're going to build the right solution for helping people more effectively use personal protective equipment. We're going to build the right solution for helping people lift effectively on the job because we understand how people might get hurt uh, as a result and what the negative outcomes could be. So instead of doing these kind of broad ideas, it's, it's building right fit solutions. I define micro learning as learning that fits. So it's applying these different ideas that I outline to build the right solution for the right time for the right audience. And in my opinion, that applies to everything that we do. So it's not just the short focus stuff. It's not just, if you can do it in less than 10 minutes, it's micro learning. No, I'd like to slide that word over there into the corner for the moment. Just say, let's apply these common principles to everything. And sometimes right fit means a robust structured program that you experience over a series of days or activities. And sometimes it means a two and a half minute video that you can access by hitting a QR code with your phone to see an overview of how this equipment works before you dive in and use it safely. So that's how I define and explain microlearning because I think given the fact, it's not just a buzzy word in L&D. I hear a lot of people who are not L&D or HR practitioners mention that word. People will come to me and say, we want to apply microlearning with what we're doing. And you have to make sure everyone's on the same page and applying those same principles and not getting distracted by the buzzier things like short and fast and, and digestible. Yes, all of those things. But there's a reason why microlearning strategy creates content that is more easily retained, more easily applied. It's the principles, not the buzzy word. You know, I like how you compare it to outside of, of the workplace because, yeah, for everyone who's on TikTok watching these short videos, there's also people listening to podcasts, long-form interviews, reading books, watching long YouTube videos. So it's it's not necessarily about everything has to be X amount of minutes. It's make it as short as possible and still hit the point. Um, so that's great. You, you have a few more chapters that I don't think we'll quite get time to discuss here on the show. You go into learning technology, data analytics, and as we've mentioned several times on the show already, influence. So those are great topics, a lot of good stuff in those chapters. And I would just advise anyone at home listening, read the book for all of JD's insights on those topics. But JD, I want to make sure we have enough time to at least reference um, what you do in your day job. You are the CLO for Exonify, who is a... Um, you know, a learning technology vendor that focuses specifically on the front line. I know an area of passion for yours. So with all the different, um, you know, vendors that are out there providing solutions, what makes Exonify unique? It's just like you said, the, the reason I moved into learning technology from the practitioner side and specifically joined Exonify was that passion and focus around enabling part of the workforce that has historically been undersupported that being frontline workers. So my entire career, whether I was operational management or L&D and now on the technology side, has been about supporting people who do what I believe is really the heavy lifting. And if you look at the book, the dedication in the front of the book, the book at first is first and foremost dedicated to frontline workers because it's where I've spent all of my time focusing. So how do we take a look at the experience of a retail worker, a grocery worker, a delivery driver, a contact center agent, and help shape an experience that not only provides them the knowledge and skill they need to do their job effectively, but the confidence right, to do a good job. Because I firmly believe everyone, regardless of if they're working with you because this is what they want to do with their career, or if they're 
just working with you in a seasonal role because they need to make some money to take care of their families. Everyone wants to do a good job. And I think, unfortunately, we haven't provided the right tools, the right support, the right opportunity for a lot of frontline workers to do that. So with Exonify, that's exactly what we do. So we work with organizations around the world uh, in all the industries that I mentioned in more than 150 countries and 62 languages right now to help enable their frontline workforce. So that includes everything from effective onboarding experience to providing ongoing reinforcement and practice opportunities, accessing information where they need it, closing communication gaps, you know, getting out of the world of binders and dry erase boards into a world where, just like we do, using tools like Slack and email, making sure people get the latest message and the latest update, uh, overall leaving, alleviating a lot of those unnecessary points of friction in the frontline employee experience. And that includes, like I said, Everything from learning and development to communication to task management, operational tools to rewards and recognition. So including all of those capabilities so that you can elevate the experience of your frontline workers, because I and the team firmly believe is that when your frontline workers have the tools they need to succeed, your business can succeed too. And I think the last couple of years have reinforced the, the critical role that the frontline workforce plays in doing that heavy lifting. So we're really excited about the opportunity to enable those frontline workers in partnership with organizations around the world. Enabling those workers is key as, you know, I know both you and I have done that work in the past and we probably remember those times where you had to have the binder in the back or go, go to some training once a quarter or whatnot. And it's great that we're taking that technology that a lot of more information office-based workers are, are getting access to and, and bringing that to people on the front line. So we'll definitely link to Exonify in the show notes as well for anyone out there that may uh, see some benefits at their business. But JD, our time is running short. So a couple of questions to wrap things up. First off, um, where can people find and connect with you? So many places, so many places. So start on LinkedIn. Let's connect and continue the conversation. So I'm, I'm JD Dillon, the CLO of Exonify and founder of LearnGeek. I'm not the energy executive. There are many JD Dillons out there, but I'm the learning and development one. My personal website's learngeek.co, and you can learn more about the book at jdwroteabook.com. That URL tells you everything you need to know about the book. And then as you mentioned, if you want to learn more about the work my team at Exonify is doing, we're at exonify.com. Great. I'll link to all of those in the show notes as well. And JD, my final question that I ask to all guests, guests, what is one thing personal or professional that you've learned lately that's been a benefit to you? Besides the fact that people are starting to wonder, when is he going to stop talking about the book? Um, I wrote a LinkedIn post a couple of weeks ago, right before the book was coming out, talking about things that I learned through the process of writing a book. And it's also mentioned, if you go to the, the website, jdwroteabook.com, there are a couple of videos on that website. One of them is my book announcement video, where I just talk straight to the camera, reflecting on the experience of what it's like to publish a book for the first time. And I made a comment in the video and in the post about the fact that releasing a book is harder than writing one. And what I meant was that I knew that writing a book is hard, right? It's a lot of words, trying to come up with a coherent and mildly insightful story to tell. But you know going in that you're going to have to spend a lot of time. And when you writing a book is not your day job, you're going to do some nights and weekends and writing and rewriting and rewriting and all of those different types of things. But the releasing part of writing a book is essentially taking, in my case especially, a personal story, the story of how I figured out how to do what I do and hopefully deliver some value to people by sharing what I do. So taking all of that and putting it in a bound format, and then saying to a lot of people in the professional community that I don't know, 
here you go. Here's me. So that experience of sharing at this level, because I am a habitual sharer. It's how I comb through new ideas, how I figure out what is and isn't working. It's how I go from kind of first draft to final draft in a lot of different ways. So I've written a lot of content. I've hosted a lot of shows. I've had podcasts. I've spoken at a variety of conferences. But this has felt like the most open I've been as a professional sharer in the fact that, as I said, I share a lot of stories about me, my work, and then what I learned along the way in hopes that it will benefit the work that you're doing in your day-to-day work. So it's been a great learning experience, I think a growth opportunity to be that open and honest and and sharing a personal experience. It's something that I wish I had done sooner. Um, It's something that I would recommend working through, whether it is just writing an article and maybe sharing an idea for the first time or going to the point where you get on the internet every day and talk about things or write a book of your own. So uh, that I think has been the biggest learning experience for me in the back half of the year is what it means to kind of go through that experience of sharing and then wait and wait to hear what are people going to think? Are people going to say this was useful or are people going to say it was fun to read or are people going to like it? Um, I'm hopeful that people enjoy it. You know, I'd like to get as many five-star reviews on Amazon as possible. But but ultimately for me, it's it comes down to, I hope people learn about as much from the book as I learned from the experience of putting it together. So that's been my most recent learning experience. Well, I know I told you this earlier on, but I, I, I can tell you I've benefited a lot from the book and I'm only halfway through, so I'm looking forward to finishing in the coming weeks. It's a great experience. And to your point, um, not only is sharing publicly something that that you can get a lot of value out of, but there's also that vulnerability in that um, th- that potential for some stumbles along the way that can be great learning experiences as well. So thank you for sharing that. And JD, thanks for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Um, this is our first two-part interview just due to how long we talked. So um, we'll have to do it again and make it a full trilogy sometime. Everyone needs a trilogy. But no, again, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much for uh, allowing me to keep talking so much that you had to create two episodes. So, And thanks for uh, the opportunity for me and everything you're doing to uh, share great ideas with the professional community. Absolutely, JD. Well, um, it's been a pleasure. And everyone at home, thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next time. Well, folks, that is it for part two of my interview with JD Dillon. Check out the show notes for how to connect with JD and to find a link to both his book, The Modern Learning Ecosystem, and to check out his company, Exonify. Be sure to subscribe to the show to keep up with new episodes. We'd also appreciate it if you could give us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast player. Also, if you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Links to everything are in the show notes. We have a few more episodes to go in 2022. Our next episode will feature my top 10 learnings from the podcast this year, and our final episode of the year will be a bonus episode where I was interviewed on another show. Thank you for listening, everybody. Go and help someone be better than they were yesterday. I will talk to you soon.